1: Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in store, or online. Kroger, fresh for
0: everyone. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio.
3: We decided not to tell the kids. Marlon knew that once our three daughters understood that their mother had been given 1,000 days to live, they'd start counting. They would not be able to enjoy school, friends, their teams, or birthday parties. They'd be watching too closely how she looked, moved, acted, ate, or didn't. Marla wanted her daughters to stay children unburdened, confident that tomorrow would look like yesterday. We threw everything at her disease, lectures, research, involvement in cancer organizations, yoga, meditation, teas, and soups. She even went to a storefront healer who lit incense, read her palm, and led her in prayer. He declared her a badass because of her restorative powers. It was a nickname that I promoted with all of her doctors and nurses because it was not only hopeful, but true. She didn't just buy time. She cheated it, squeezed months and years out of it. Marla was a statistical freak, an aberration, an outlier. One thousand days landed firmly in her rearview mirror.
4: That's John Melman. John is a New York City-based real estate executive, and this is a story of a devoted husband and wife making a painful choice to keep a shared secret from their children, a complex and challenging decision made in the name of love. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets, the secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves.
3: I grew up in Washington, D.C., and this is now 1970-ish and I have a recollection of. My father was a rabbi, and he was a, um, somewhat of an avant-garde rabbi at that juncture in that uh, he only wanted to be a rabbi in metropolitan areas, not in a suburb, so really inner city. And so the first synagogue that he was at actually was at a church that shared Friday night and Saturday with the synagogue, and they took the cross out of the room, and they brought the cars in, and they brought the arks in, and back and forth.
4: Unusual for those days.
3: Very unusual. So there were many politicians and others in the Jewish community that migrated to the synagogue, and before you knew it, he had 500 families.
4: But even though John's father's congregation was growing in leaps and bounds, there weren't schools nearby that were academically strong enough. So John commuted each day to a Jewish day school in Silver Spring, Maryland. This meant he didn't have a real childhood in the neighborhood because there weren't really any other kids. So John grows up a rabbi's kid with his own set of parameters and expectations. The community keeps an eye on the rabbi's kids. There are proper ways to behave, an image to uphold. And then in 1977, John's dad's big opportunity comes He's the last candidate of over 50 rabbis to be interviewed at the largest synagogue in Boston.
3: He got the job. He got the job. And what was interesting there was that my mother grew up in Brookline, Massachusetts. So it was really a coming home party because the synagogue, although it in Boston proper, it was a seven or eight minute walk to our home in Brookline. So I ended up going to the same high school that my mother did. And my grandparents lived about two miles away where the house that she grew up in.
4: Was there that feeling, too, of the rabbi's family needs to comport themselves in a certain well, way? Well, at that
3: time, that yes, and now all of a sudden, we were the um, the folks in that community had a higher standard than a small little synagogue in Washington, D.C., so we had the higher expectations. We went on every Friday night. I went on every Saturday.
4: This seems important, maybe even integral to John's story and what comes later, his being a rabbi's son, a family held to a certain standard, displayed on view for the whole community to see. That, and also, John grew up knowing that his father, the rabbi, was a keeper of confidences, of secrets. It was his pastoral duty. Keeping secrets, taking on another person's burden, also meant preserving integrity. So John goes off to college in 1984. He wants to get as far away from home as he possibly can, and his father tells him he can't cross the Mason-Dixon line or the Mississippi, so he winds up at the University of Michigan. He meets his future wife, Marla, when he's a senior and she's a junior. They're with a group of mutual friends who are all playing a game of intramural co-ed
3: football. For the first couple of games, um, I just kind of bossed her around, like, you need to do this, you need to cover there, you need to do this. And I really didn't have a relationship with her. And then we went out as a group to a... You know, a bar or pizza place After one of the games And I got to know her And she was actually dating or seeing One of the other guys on the team And his name was Evan And um, I called up Evan Because we were pretty friendly And I said, Evan, I I think I connected with Marla I understand you may be seeing her Or I'm not sure you're dating her Or whatever's going on But do you mind if I ask her on a date? He said, sure, we're just friends It's no big deal No problem, I have no problem Appreciate you asking and have fun I think that was a Tuesday. That was, I think, November 4th. The Thursday, November 6th, I called her and I said, what are you doing tomorrow night? And we went out on a date. And that was 31 years together after that date. I just knew that there was something about Marla that I wasn't letting go of.
4: John graduates, then finds a job very quickly in the real estate business in Chicago. He and Marla commute back and forth, and after she graduates, she joins him in Chicago, where she begins working as a graphic designer. They get two apartments because their parents don't approve of a 21- and 22-year-old moving in together, and they keep up that charade for a year and a half. Then John decides to go to business school. He's ambitious and needs another degree, and the two of them head down to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, but not before Marla's dad corners John and asks the fatherly question, what are your intentions? John's intentions, it seems, from the moment he first meets Marla, are to spend his life with her. They get engaged on Marla's birthday in 1992.
3: So in 1993, we got married. We went on our honeymoon, and I started work two weeks later because I had no money. And she found a job pretty quickly as well uh, in the graphic design business. She was pretty talented, and we started our lives. I was a lowly associate at Bankers Trust in the real estate investment banking group, calling on clients and doing pitch books and raising money, and that's what we did. We stayed in New York for about six years. And then we moved out to the suburbs in 99, right when our second, or just before our second was going to be born.
4: So your firstborn was born in the city.
3: Yes. They were um, all born in the city. They were all born
4: in the city, yes. They were all born in the city. Three daughters. Three daughters.
3: So we moved to Scarsdale, which is a bedroom community, which is about a 35-minute train ride from Midtown.
4: You're now a father of three. Mm-hmm. And... Is Marla still working at this point?
3: No, Marla stopped working shortly after Sarah was born.
4: So, what were those early years like of this young family living in Scarsdale, and you commuting um, into the city? And
3: once you, you know, you're you're in the nursery school or preschool or with the synagogue or with the elementary school, then you all of a sudden you have like these these automatic play groups and friend groups and adult groups. I may not have been the best father early on because I was working really hard.
4: We're going to take a short break.
0: your perfect home, sweet home.
3: I was working really hard. And I was never around. I was on the road three or four days a week. I would worked very, very late, often on weekends and going back in the city on weekends. Or I worked in an office in, in my house. But I was quite dedicated to my career. At that juncture, and there were high expectations on that. I worked exceedingly hard for my clients.
4: So John and Marla live a traditional, lovely family life in suburban Westchester. He's ambitious, competitive in his work. He loves the deal, the game. They have a vibrant social world filled with other families and John's clients. The girls are little. He's a devoted dad, though he also describes himself as distracted Not quite as present as he wishes he had been, now that he reviews history. His phone is never far away. Still, he's always at their daughter's recitals and sporting events. He and Marla are in the thick of abundant, busy, burgeoning lives. They're a couple who would seem blessed, golden, like nothing dark or terrible could ever touch them.
3: We had enormous fun, hiking and bike riding and... Uh, skiing and um, all sorts of family excursions that included some form of outdoor experience and having three daughters they just saw this woman that could do anything I was a pretty good athlete but I wasn't anywhere close so it was this big joke that how good she was and I you know Versus me. So the girls gravitated to her and her athleticism and her, her creativity, and she was this designer, and she could cook, and she could, she could arts and crafts, and she put herself together with these incredible outfits, so she had this incredible design, athletic, and persona that was, she had this stunning quality to her.
4: Marla is diligent, very diligent about her health. She takes care of herself, sees her doctors, makes sure she stays on top of annual testing.
3: Sure enough, in um, 2009, she went for her regular test. I think it was on a Thursday she went for her test, and she usually heard by the end of the day what the results were. And I was traveling, and I came home on that Friday afternoon, and she said to me, I'm not sure what's going on here. Doesn't just Something doesn't feel right. Something doesn't feel right. This is taking too long. And she had a premonition, and that about 4.30 or 5 o'clock the night before, this was a, an hour or two before we had to go to this first initiation for Bat Mitzvahs for my oldest, and we found out that, you know, there was something we weren't really sure, but it was something, and that they thought it was the early stages of breast cancer. And this was in March 31st of 2009 that we got that in Zinger, and that really rocked us. We weren't really sure where it came from and who got it, how how it existed, and so forth and so on and before you know it we that we spent the next few weeks interviewing doctors surgeons all sorts of experts in the city we 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 were pretty well connected and we were able to find the right people pretty quickly and then we started finding out that the type of cancer that she had was more severe from a cell than most others even though it was early stage we knew that it was something that we needed to contend with that you know we needed to keep our eye on this one and then we found out after some further blood tests that there is a cancer linkage or a, a determinant, potential determinant, of breast cancer in women from the Jewish faith that do have a link to a, a mutation called the BRCA mutation. And it turned out that when marla took the blood test, she had it. If we had known this um, maybe five or seven years previous, we probably may have had kids sooner and we would have been more proactive than reactive to certain things that you can do under precautionary circumstances. You would have probably have done a, a bilateral mastectomy before you were 30 or 35 in that zip code, and you probably would have had your ovaries taken out by your time you were 40. She was 41, 41. So this was all happening, and so the we, all this news was coming at us pretty rapidly, and we decided to do all of that at once. And then, because we wanted to be extra certain at that time that we were hopeful of zapping the cancer, she decided to do eight rounds of chemo right after that. So, she did a bilateral mastectomy. She had her ovaries removed. She did eight rounds of chemo. We had a six month period where she was really, you know, taking it. In it. Just in, in it. it. In it. In it.
4: And during that period of time, mm-hmm. your daughters were. 8, 10, and 11? Yes,
3: and they, they were aware that she had been diagnosed with breast cancer at that time. And they knew that. They knew that she was going to lose her hair. They knew that she was uh, going to be going through what I just described. But Marla took a very different approach to that. It's more mind over body and refused to change her lifestyle for this diagnosis. And despite the fact that she couldn't run for a few weeks because of what was going on with some of the surgeries, she was walking tremendously. And then even during chemo, she wasn't supposed to run. She ran four or five, six days a week between during these periods of time at very long distances. And this was her way of telling cancer, not so fast. So this showed the kids, most importantly, that she wasn't going to succumb to any of the rumors or or expectations of what toxicities would do. So everybody was telling her, oh, you're going to be really, you're going to be drowsy. You're going to be nauseous. You're not going to have any energy. She was up at 630 every morning running, just refused, refused to listen to any of these whispers and just her body told her, you can do this, you can do this. And a couple of times she rested and she didn't feel it. But for the most part, she was defying anything that was told to her or risks that were told to her. So the kids saw her living normally. She was involved in the school. She was wearing a wig. The wig came off. She had short hair. It grew back. The kids didn't care.
4: So it- would you say at that time for your kids... This was like a speed bump, but not... Speed
3: bump, right. In fact, the entire time it was a speed bump because she never let it control her lifestyle. We went on trips. We were active in the community. We were socially active. We were physically active. They didn't know that. But I'm just saying, this: our lifestyle did not change. And they didn't see any difference to a normal family that may not have been dealing with a, a cancer situation.
4: Did the community, you know, your community, the school community, the temple mm, community, sure, sure. did they know at and that so point? the
3: first time we told everybody, and Marla didn't like that. It was plenty of too many lasagnas and too many casseroles and too many people coming to the house and wondering and wanting and gossiping, and they were all scared for themselves, so they wanted to know what it was like, and she didn't like being the center of attention, she didn't like the pity, she didn't like... Any of that aspect of it. So, fast-forwarding, when it came back a couple years later, she refused to tell anybody, except for blood, except for the children.
4: So, just in terms of clarity, her cancer after the chemo, after the surgeries, went into remission. Yes, And the hope was, we're done with this.
3: Absolutely. This is a chapter, nothing more. We're finished. We're finished. And for that next year and a half, you would never have known. She felt good about her body. She liked the newly improved. That was important to her in terms of her body. She wanted to feel good about it. And she felt that she licked it. And she was very involved. And at this time now, we're involved in a big side of our community with the bar and bat mitzvahs. And so that was a big part of Scarsdale. And, and, and the kids, there was a relatively, I would say 30, 35% of the community is Jewish. And our kids were now going through it every other year. So we had my many, hat, ma- My hat is off to you. Many, many of those. So that part, of, and Marla loved to dance and she loved to celebrate other people and herself. That was a big part of it. So she found... I would say, an ability to celebrate more after she had this, you know, first scare. You would never say, oh, my God, she's incredible. I've never, I've never seen anything like it. Because she just blocked it away and and put her elbow into it and just threw it off. And the doctors were amazed, and every three and six months, she got Queen bill of health. Marle always was touching herself always feeling always feeling and she was always doing her own little probing in areas and her lymph nodes and her ears and her cheeks and her uh, anywhere but this area here in her this the clavicle area she was always focused on always focused on and she felt a little pee and this is a couple years after the first diagnosis almost to the day we always we didn't like march we didn't like March. march march was bad for us So she found a little pea, the size of a pea, on her clavicle. We went back to Sloan Kettering. I'll never forget, the doctor said, you've got metastatic breast cancer, it's back. He said, how could that be? She's doing great, she feels great. He said to me, if it's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, I'll kiss the floor that we're on. The chemo didn't work, he said, because it didn't get everything. So sometimes it leaks upwards into this area. So this is a normal type of breast cancer cell that was not zapped.
4: Marla's doctor knew even before the pathology was done. He was an expert. He had seen this many times before. Of course, the pathology confirmed his worst fears. Conventional chemotherapy had done what it could and ultimately had failed. Now it was time for specialized clinical trials the best of these for Marla was being conducted at Dana Farber in Boston. Their daughters at this point are now almost 14, almost 12, and just 10. Marla and John make a decision not to tell them that their mother's cancer has returned.
3: We were told a thousand days early on. They were not happy giving me that number. I pressed because no doctor wants to be on the spit churning around with a, day, a, a date certain. His line was, you know, it's around 1,000 days, but go live your life as well as you can. Marla did not want to tell anybody. And then we got on to this process, and she felt good. And the trial was working and working and working. And all her counts and all her numbers were below before where she was previously. So she said, I feel good. I'm just now running up here to do my scans and so forth and coming up here maybe instead of three or four times a month, it was two times a month. Once in a while, it was one time a month. But she wasn't blinking. She wasn't changing her lifestyle. And she was still playing tennis, and she was still running, and she was still running with the kids all over to their sports and all their activities, and she was still hosting birthday parties and whatever the case. So she's like, okay, this is just the way my chronic disease is going to envelop my life so the longer that she went the longer she felt like I don't have to tell anybody because I feel fine I have two Mm -hmm. questions one is I mean
4: I think I really understand this um, and I think I in many ways would feel the same way but the feeling of I don't want people to know I don't want people to talk Mm -hmm. I don't want the casseroles Mm -hmm. was that do you think was it? Is that pride or is that privacy
3: I think it was simpler than that she did not want her kids lives tickled or affected or, or or bothered or any type of noise associated with her to link and make them worry or wonder it was very simple i want my kids to live a normalized lifestyle as if i was healthy and i'm going to preserve that for whatever i can and she did that for 9 years 9 years
4: Many more than a thousand days. So that leads me to my second mm-hmm. question, which is: the parents that were still living knew, or maybe siblings knew, but most people in your life had no idea that this was going on. Was what was that like for you? Was that isolating for you at all, or, mm-hmm. or did you just?
3: I'm um, I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing. Everybody's dealt some hands in life. We got a crap sandwich, and we had to deal with it.
4: We're going to take a quick break. Zumo Play is your destination
1: for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels.
0: If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.
3: We got a crab sandwich, and we had to deal with it. We never looked back at what was me, why us, we never said that to each other we never wondered like you know i wish it hadn't it just we just accepted it and, but we tried to accept it in a manner that we fought it as fiercely as humanly possible we used every access point that we possibly could from a relationship standpoint from an involvement standpoint from traveling around to different hospitals to meet different doctors to learn and to educate ourselves so um, but there was nothing we could do. This is not, uh, hey, I broke my leg and it's going to mend. We thought the first time that we'd get it. We knew the s- statistics were against us. Um, and then, even the second time, she outperformed and pushed the boundaries, you know, three and a half times more than somebody else should have. And enabled our kids to go through their puberty, their adolescent teenage years, their high school years, you know, tough times for girls, not easy time for any girl. Saw them get into their colleges of their dreams. They all were academically very strong students, they were also incredible athletes. And they all played at a Division I level, which for Scarsdale Jewish girls was rare. So they were able to stay on track on a very, very high level that is probably only because of Marla, that they saw this fierceness in her to fight the early days and the way that she lived her life, knowing that she always had, potentially had this cancer that was lingering. So it worked for us, it's not for everybody. It was uneasy fibbing. Could you describe that a little bit? Well, for instance, we'd go on a vacation. But Marl, we always had to schedule our vacations on scans or treatments, and they were all being done in Boston. So we would leave from New York the day after she had her scan in Boston. She'd literally run back and then get on a plane we go away. But then we'd go back, and we'd come back to New York, and Marla would go back to Boston. Why is Mommy going back to Boston? Oh, well, she has to, you know, she's part of this trial. Yes, it's true. She was part of a trial. A piece of the truth, a right? A piece of the truth. But it wasn't like, it wasn't as though this trial is keeping her alive, kids. We never said that. And that was the truth. We called it the loving choice to provide them enough information that they knew what was going on, but not every detail.
4: So Marla really was fine. Totally fine. For years she's fine. Years in which she requires a tremendous amount of medical attention. Sometimes she wears a wig, but otherwise you really wouldn't suspect that she's dealing with a terminal illness. No one knows. But then, in 2018, with her girls now all highly competent young adults... Marla starts running out of options. She's churned through every possible clinical trial and conventional medicine. She begins to develop tumors around her clavicle again, and these are pinching her vocal cords. She has radiation, and a port is put in. This, of course, becomes harder and harder to keep hidden. She has to change the way she dresses. No more summery outfits, nothing low-cut or sleeveless. She wears scarves around her neck,
3: I just thought, because she had this ability to, re- to regenerate, even when the, the trial, they, they didn't think a trial was going to work, it would work for six or nine months, and which was unheard of. Most trials really work eight or 16 weeks. Uh, I just figured we'd get through this holiday season. We have two graduations this year, one of which we had already. We have one in a, in, in a month. I just figured she would plow through this and make it because the red letter days for her were so important to her, she lived for those she lived for those days. I just figured she'd do it. But Marla, in September and October, could see that we were headed down a, a trickier place. And she decided, I'm done keeping this secret. I, I can't do it anymore. The guilt was, was riding, and she wasn't sure what the timeline was.
4: When you say guilt, was it because at that point she was... Facing her own mortality. Facing
3: her own mortality. She didn't want to walk around the house covering the port or the fact that she had different red spots because of the radiation. She just didn't want to hide anymore. She was certain she wanted to do in October when the kids were home for the fall break. And she felt then she felt better. She said, "Okay, I'll just wait till Thanksgiving. Then she got some bad news in November that really there wasn't much left in terms of the even the conventional medicines. And there was one last-ditch effort, but the doctors were saying, you need to start to get ready here. But I just figured she would do it for another six or eight months, and it would be a crappy summer of 19. I thought the summer of 19 would be really crappy.
4: Their older two daughters are away in college, and the youngest is a high school senior, when John and Marla sit them down over Thanksgiving to break some of the news to them. Not all of the news.
3: So... We told the kids in Thanksgiving that we were concerned. Not worried, but we were concerned. That mom had taken a turn and some things had occurred that we did not expect and that we were working through them, but that we were basically flashing a yellow light. Not to worry, and we had a script that we had come in our mind, and it went really well. And then Marla pushed the envelope, a little bit in the conversation, and we had the girls in a pretty good place, because I don't think that they were totally surprised by all of this, that there was something going on, because the little one was at home, and I'm sure she was telling the sisters that, you know, mom's been running around a little bit more. And she said in this conversation, and we had talked about this line, which was, you know, there's the the likelihood that I'm going to make it to 80 is very low. And then she said, and I was shocked by, and I did a turn with my neck on, I'll never forget. She said, and it's unlikely that I'm going to make it to 60. And that's when we had a little bit of bedlam in the house. The girls were not expecting that. And that sort of changed the vibe and the rhythm to the conversation. But she had had enough of the the gamesmanship that she had and the brinksmanship that she had.
4: John, how old was Marla at, at this point? She was
3: 51. Point? 51. So she, in January, she would have been 52.
4: And then, just a couple of weeks later, Marla takes a turn. She's feeling extremely parched, an unusual symptom, and asks John to take her to the hospital so she can get IV fluids. It's there at the hospital that it's discovered Marla is hours away from septic shock. There was a hole in her stomach that a tumor had perforated.
3: And then, two weeks later, this we had a hard right turn, and the girls knew that it was a hard right turn. And I will say that during those times in the hospital, which were uh, incredible to see her mind work, they were incredibly thankful that Marla chose the way to play this out, and to wait it out, and not blinking and not telling them. That was comforting to Marla, that her decision, which was in their best interest, which she always wondered about, was the right one.
4: And in the aftermath of Marla's death, Mm -hmm. has that feeling continued?
3: I I think so. I think so. You know, we're dealing with uh, different levels of grief in terms of denial and anger and super sadness, I call it. Different kids have different moods. I wish I could get everybody on the same page to have a bad day the same day, but that doesn't happen to me especially. Nevertheless, there are some friends that were in a different predicament of theirs that knew about their parents' illness, and they were miserable knowing about it, worrying about it. What happened to the doctor's appointment? What did the doctor say? What What did the test say? What does this mean? How can, can we, are we, are we gonna be normal? Are we not gonna be normal? And that had an effect on everybody, on these children, and that they told the kids how lucky they were for not knowing. And I think that that resonated with the girls and I think that that comforted them that in retrospect they probably saw signs that they were they could have been more picked up on and they were Snoopy too and I'm sure they looked at emails and texts and so forth and so on but they we never really talked about it until Thanksgiving
4: now it's December 2018 there's no question now as to what's happening to Marla she's dying and everyone knows it the time for secrecy and all the protections it offers has passed. Marla has been dealt, how did John put it earlier? A crap sandwich. But within that crap sandwich is incredible intentionality. She's going to mother her girls her
3: way, right up until the very end. She told me to get the kids and bring them in. She needed to tell them a few things each. I call it the hopes and dreams.
4: As in her hopes and dreams for them? Her hopes and dreams
3: for them. Hopes and dreams for them. And so the three kids were in there, and we each have a parent that's alive. So they were there, and one of Marla's brothers were there. And we had a family friend who was our housekeeper who was also a a, a caregiver to Marla as well. And so she was there. So we we had this experience where... um, we all finally got everybody together because we had travel and people were in different places and so forth. So We got everybody together and Marla had a script in her head, but she didn't tell me what she was going to say. I kind of knew what she was going to say, but I didn't know exactly how elegant and eloquent and articulate she'd be. This is a person now who is, you know, seven, seven days away from passing. Six days away from passing. And didn't know that it would be six days or 16 days or one day. We propped her up on the bed and she closed her eyes and she just spoke as though she was reading a teleprompter. It was just the most amazing thing that she would, it was like as though she rehearsed it. And it's not like you and I are talking now and we're just doing it off the cuff. This was incredibly rehearsed and and laid out in a precise outline for every person.
4: Six days later, Marla passed away on December 19th. John estimates that between 850 and 900 people attended her funeral. But on this day, with her family gathered around her, she shares her hopes and dreams for her daughters as if laying out a series of life plans, her extraordinary parting gift.
3: And then we had a popsicle party. A popsicle party? We had a popsicle party, and then we played this game, Cards Against Humanity, and she was a judge. And we had a, a lots of hooting and laughing, and she had this very tart sense of humor, and she was, um, you know, she was in full force.
4: Many thanks to John Melman for sharing his family's story with us. You can find his essay, My Wife Was Dying and We Didn't Tell Our Children on TheAtlantic.com. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer. Lowell Brolanti is the audio engineer. And Julie Douglas is the executive producer. And a very special thanks to Tristan McNeil for his soundscaping work on this episode. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, you can get in touch with us at listenermail at familysecretspodcast.com. And you can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer and Facebook at Family Secrets Pod and Twitter at FamSecretsPod. For more about my book, Inheritance, visit dannyshapiro.com.
5: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever
3: you listen to your favorite shows.
1: Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle.